When it comes to climate promises, there's a lot of talk, but not enough action. I'm Oli Giu. And I'm Fala Alalea. And this is Pitch Pulse, a podcast from the Private Infrastructure Development Group. Pidge finances innovative infrastructure projects in sub-Saharan Africa and South and Southeast Asia. We're committed to the economic growth of the world's most fragile communities, lifting them out of poverty with a strong focus on sustainability. At the end of this month, the world's most important climate conference begins. COP26 arrives following a year in which we've seen firsthand the devastating impacts of climate change. The need for change is urgent. And at Pidge, we take climate change into account in every investment and operation decision. This is especially important as we focus solely on infrastructure in some of the poorest and most fragile contexts, parts of the world which are hit hardest by climate change. The trouble is, in these parts of the world, transitioning to green isn't easy when you're already living with badly administered grids, intermittent electricity, unclear energy storage options, it can feel like business as usual is the only option to sustain your community. Unfortunately, that is not an option at all. Recently, we heard 18-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg taking a dig at governments and the lack of action being taken around the world to stave off climate change. As she put it, there's a lot of blah, blah, blah and not enough action. At Pidge, we are taking action, so this wasn't easy to hear. But we recognise there is legitimacy to this statement. Rachel Kite is a climate change expert, a committee member for Pidge and Dean of the Fletcher School. Rachel is also a member of the UN Secretary General's High Level Advisory Group on Climate Change for Climate Action and advisor to the UK government for COP26. So on the subject of Greta's blah, 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 what does Rachel believe are the political issues that need to be resolved? So I think the blah, blah, blah is on point, uh, which is why perhaps it's, it's caused so much resonance. And one of the reasons why people like me are so busy at the moment is that we're trying to sift our way through the blah, blah, blah and try to get to really concrete actions uh, or agreements uh, around action. The way to think about Glasgow is that six years ago in Paris, we agreed the what. The what is that we have to try to find a way to curb uh, emissions so that we can arrive at uh, well below two degrees, now updated to one and a half degrees because of the science of warming uh, by mid-century, which means we need to be net zero by mid-century, which means that we have to have 45% of cuts in emissions this decade. Paris was also the what in that we have to do that in an equitable way. We have to, we can't leave people behind. There's no success if, you know, three countries reach net zero and everybody else doesn't. Glasgow is the how. So six years after Paris, every country has to come with a ratcheted up plan, a bottom-up plan, a nationally determined contribution that shows how they will manage their transition, every country's transition is different, towards arriving at a collective net zero target mid-century. The other part of the how is loss and damage. How are we going to pay for the impacts of climate change already being felt by those who did nothing to cause the problem? If it were not a climate negotiation, we would call this reparations, but it's called loss and damage, and we have to figure out how to pay for it. That's on the table. Also on the table in Glasgow is how are we going to manage carbon markets? How are we going to use carbon market instruments? And then finally, finance. How do we pay for these transitions? Can we meet the unmet promise of $100 billion a year of climate finance? Where is the next five years of money? It should be more than $100 billion a year, but where's the agreement on that? And then how much of that should actually be paying for adaptation? There's a feeling that most of that money actually goes to mitigation efforts. 
And for most of the countries where we work as PIDGE, there's an extraordinary uh, pent-up uh, need and demand for financing of adaptation. So that's all on the table under negotiations. Of course, there is a race to zero, which is private sector pledges and claims, where there's a lot of very exciting things going on. There's a lot of hyperbole. There's a lot of, frankly, greenwashing. But uh, underneath all of that, there are some very, very important sort of steps forward. There are huge geographical considerations in the fight against climate change. There's no way to change the course we're on without joined up and collaborative action from all countries. But Rachel says that's not easy. The stunning failure of the developed world to come up with a clearly articulated plan for global vaccine provision and delivery has sort of shot a blunderbuss through what was already strained trust between the developed and the developing world. And in fact, some of the progress that have been made in building trust in the run-up to Paris and then subsequently afterwards has sort of dissipated in, in recent years by the woeful lack of global solidarity on vaccines, but also this the singular inability also to explain where the 100 billion promise is actually going to come from and actually meeting that 100 billion target in a world where, and the IMF is just, Ian Parry at the IMF, who's as runs a superb, very small shop on climate uh, sort of analytics in their research department, put out a, a new study today showing that we spend $11 million every minute on harmful fossil fuel subsidies. So it's not like we don't have the money, right? It's just that there is still this big disconnect between what we know we need to do and where the inertia and the incumbency of our economies sort of interrupt uh, that, that sort of desire. So all of this um, plays out in a north-south dynamic of, you know, what used to be called common but differentiated responsibilities. So the developed world caused the problem, the developed world therefore has to sort the problem out and pay for other people to be able to make their own transition. However, we're now at a point where emissions are rising drastically. And we know from the science that we have to halt emissions more quickly than perhaps we thought we did, which means that everybody has to grow green, right? So if you're Indonesia, if you are, you know, if you are Bangladesh, whatever, you have your transition. Your transition has to be one where you can meet people's basic needs, but you also need to do that in a green way. The good news is that the levelized cost of electricity is um, cheaper uh, for, for solar with storage that storage could be hydro or it could be battery or whatever than it is to build a new coal plant plus the financing for coal has really gone away now not just from the west but also from china for korea and japan so the real problem is if you're a developing country depending on where you are in in your own energy planning and strategy how much access you have how reliable your energy is how expensive it is what's the source of that energy, you have to plan a transition whereby you can close the access gap cleanly, affordably and reliably in the next 10 years. That's the challenge. And the weakness of the climate negotiations is that there's, while there's been extraordinary emphasis on what uh, international finance should not do, whether it be public or private, you've seen the private sector basically walk away from fossil fuels in large part. That's not a complete process, but that's a very fast moving process. And you've seen public money come under almost a complete sort of ban on funding of coal and now uh, pressure on funding of different kinds of fossil fuel investments. While we've been very good at saying what you can't do, uh, there has not been the commensurate package on what we will fund. And so what you need to see is this build back better promise that hasn't really materialized in the last year 
of a massive investment in clean and green infrastructure, including energy infrastructure. Rachel mentioned the MDBs there, the multilateral development banks. Now, they've come under renewed criticism recently, particularly from within the country's pig operates. And Rachel says currently the MDBs are not up to the challenge of fighting climate change. If climate change is everything, which is a famous Time magazine cover from the summer of this year, then everything needs to change. That means that the way in which you think through the assistance to a country, so your development policy lending, your lending, your private sector lending, the way in which you manage your treasury operations, the way you think about each of your sectoral programs. I mean, climate change is as much about agriculture and transport as, as it is about the energy lending of the bank, etc. So everything has to change, and that hasn't, and that hasn't happened. We're still talking about, you know, uh, an IDA instrument that has an adaptation or a window, uh, or we're talking about, yes, we're not funding any more upstream fossil fuel investments, but we're still putting two billion dollars into intensive uh, livestock agriculture without any analysis of whether that helps the country move through its transition. So there's all kinds of um, inconsistencies still, I think, in the MDBs. They got a lot more capital in recent years. They're, they could get a lot more again. And I think there's a growing chorus of the MDBs don't get any more money unless they can show exactly how everything they do helps the country on its transition. If this is a climate emergency, which it clearly is from the science, then every conversation has got to be, how do we help you move through the transition to get to net zero inclusively, right? So then you would say to the World Bank Group and others that their social safety net packages must include the bundling of access to clean fuels for cooking and clean fuels for other use. Into your safety net, you must bundle additional cash payments for adaptation or access to heat resilient seeds or things like this. So this sort of integrated mindset, I think, hasn't quite been achieved. And then when it comes to IFC and to private sector lending, I think the criticism is that they're too slow on off-grid energy, but they were too cheap for uh, on-grid renewables. I th- I felt um, sort of having a, an impact on the market in, in an, in perhaps sometimes a negative way, and they were too expensive for off-grid. And so now when you think about the uh, necessity of really letting those markets grow, the IFC is sort of slow and that is the other criticism is the way that the safeguards are implemented. So I think that, you know, is there a case for using the boots on the ground knowledge that is in the MDBs about what's going on in the private and public sectors in their countries to originate, but really to then distribute to the private sector and not just originate deals and then hold them for your own account and measure the success of these institutions by a very different rubric. So the question for, for Pidge really, which is more agile, which does have its boots and eyes on the ground and does understand where the deal flow can go. Whatever happens with the finance discussions in COP26, deal flow as ever is always going to be a challenge. And so, you know, how do we develop that deal flow? Current statistics show that 90% of climate finance currently goes towards mitigation rather than adaptation. Uh, But we have seen a call from the Secretary General to ensure that changes so that 50% of all spending goes towards adaptation. The MDBs seem to be putting that into action, but Rachel says 50% is still not enough. That, in the end of the day, is not very much. We're talking about trillions of dollars in order to 
change the way that we manage we manage land so that it's it's going to be more resilient i mean the, the way in which we build every new road the way we build every new piece of energy infrastructure has to be adapted to cope with the extreme weather that we expect to see in each of our countries so i think that there's been some first steps in the run-up to cop that this has to be funded at a different level i mean it's hard but i i, I do think that the, really integrating the climate reality of each of the client countries and the MDBs into the way in which they think about climate proofing everything that they do, but actually helping it move forward. I, I, I don't think that that's yet the way that we think about things. Now, there's a lot of talk about leapfrogging technology in developing countries, which would allow for a smoother and quicker transition to green than the course charted by developed countries. But is it even possible for leapfrogging of this nature to happen? Is it a realistic view or a utopia? There are a lot of technologies on the market today which are just not deployed and available or not known about in uh, low-income countries and emerging markets. And if they were, they would make a big difference in the in the curve of emissions. And then be- before we start thinking about, you know, whether we all have sort of small, you know, thorium nuclear reactors in the backpack, you know, uh, and we take them everywhere with us. I mean, you know, we don't have to... This can be about roofing materials which can keep a house four degrees cooler than other roofing materials uh, which can be made from waste paper and and wood pulp waste. This is about making the glass technology which is available in Europe already which uh, reflects back out to the world and and can reduce the the heat inside a house by 10 degrees. I mean what would it take for that to be, be able to be manufactured on the African continent? It, all the different uh, business models around electric scooters, electric light vehicles, the race for the brightest white paint. I mean, th- there is so much out there and a lot of it is reasonably low tech as well. And you see extraordinary examples in Cameroon, in Kenya of uh, solar cold storage, for example. So what does it take for them to go to scale? None of that involves an IPP coal fired generator. None of that includes extending out your gas infrastructure. When you get down into the nitty gritty and you think about, okay, what is an integrated energy transport development plan that would allow everybody to get access to affordable, you know, reliable energy and which would bend the curve of emissions in a way that would keep uh, air quality in our cities good. You, You start to see things. And then I think is where is the international support to the central bank in that country, to the Ministry of Finance in that country, and then to regulators so that they actually have the faith and confidence to lay the policy pathway. If you set the right target and work back, I see extraordinary entrepreneurship, you know, and people really struggling to get access to working capital, really people really struggling to get access to good quality equity, and developing countries struggling to get access to the capital markets at good price. If we really decided to do this, we could. And I think that uh, pitch has a very important role to play in speaking truth to power. What we need is more swift action from institutional investors. The messages that we've been hearing from Nigeria and Pakistan, two countries that are quite vulnerable to climate change, are that local institutional investors are agnostic on climate issues. So how do we get buy-in from everyone to move at the same speeds that we need to tackle this issue? Yeah, so I think that the level of awareness within uh, institutional investors around the world is is moving very fast in the right direction, but not at the same speed. And I think it's true that when you get down into 
an institutional investor or even a diaspora invest, uh, investment conversation with a country like Nigeria, there isn't the same level of sort of urgency around around the risk that's being faced. Or there, or there is a discussion of like, well, yeah, this is risky, but the risk is going to have to be borne by somebody else somewhere else. And we'll, we'll continue on a sort of business as usual trajectory and then we'll pivot in five years time when we've made some great leap forward. You could just about get away with that five years ago. I think that the science has completely taken away the plausible deniability that's embedded in that kind of attitude. So is there a disconnect between political investment leadership and civil society? Yeah, so in Nigeria, right, you've got this extraordinary experimentation with the solar generator, right, the idea that we can switch out noisy diesel polluting generators from every market in Nigeria with a solar and that's going gangbusters. We've also got extraordinary companies doing off-grid uh, electricity in different. But plus, you've got you've got every possible. I mean, this is Nigeria. I mean, they are born entrepreneurs, right? It's it's a, it's a vibrant economy, and you've got a vice president who wrote just a month ago in Foreign Policy magazine that you know Nigeria had a God-given right to exploit gas because you know for whatever reason, right? But that that was now obviously the vice president's looking to be the president and that's where the money in politics is in Nigeria no different than the United States in the same week that he wrote that the finance minister of Iraq also another petro state wrote a piece in one of the western newspapers saying it's time we have to figure out how to go to net zero so part of it is what is your economy how do you see the transition where is the politics where is fossil fuel money in your politics? And then it was also an issue of political leadership. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but it is a point worth repeating that the countries which contribute the least to climate change are also the hardest hit by its effects. In fact, the entire continent of Africa accounts for less than 5% of global emissions. So why should countries in Africa pay such a high price, take drastic measures and work so hard to cut emissions when they're not even nearly the worst offenders? The bad news is that even 5% of emissions is bad now. The bigger point is that th these will be stranded assets. So let's say you want to pursue a path of installing more fossil fuel, uh, centrally generated power over perhaps some kind of mix of renewables and storage and a regional energy program or something like this. The real risk is how to finance that because uh, private finance is looking at that you know, with increasing alarm and um, pricing that risk in differently. So that to finance that from the public purse, that means that the taxpayer, your local taxpayer is mm. going to be left holding that. And if you if your domestic pension funds, and your domestic institutional investors in, are persuaded to invest in it, too, they're going to hold it as well. And then when it all goes bad, which it will within a decade, because we've got to decarbonize, then let me tell you, you'll be doing bad bank rescues. And, you know, again, the price of that is going to fall on the domestic taxpayer. Or you're going to turn around to the international community and say, please ride to the rescue. It's clear that everyone has a role to play in protecting the future of our planet. Rachel says Pidge is at the forefront of this action and needs to double down on its efforts. Guarantee instruments are very, very important. I think a lot of what has happened in the last few years has been really robust and I think a lot of good stuff I'd like to see perhaps even more determination to uh, use guarantee instruments to sort of skate to where the puck is going to be as they say you know but I think anything that reduces food waste 
anything that helps healthcare be distributed uh, safely and locally. So anything to do with off-grid uh, renewable energy uh, and its applications into agriculture's applications into the healthcare system, its application into the transport transition that has to happen. I mean, these are things that already Pidge is doing, but I think that there is even more and more opportunity. Anything that involves taking sort of applied technology from India into Africa, also sort of the energy water um, nexus. We don't talk about it enough. One of the biggest impacts of climate change is going to be what happens to ground availability of clean water um, as we experience extraordinary weather events which are going to have a huge impact on uh, aquifers and uh, groundwater as well as obviously the floods that we read about you know anything anything in new building technologies anything that anything anything that helps you become more energy efficient and you know not a little bit i'm talking about five times ten times these are going to be good bets a massive thank you to rachel kite if you'd like to find out more about pidge's approach to taking action on climate change visit pidge.org You've been listening to Pitch Pulse. You can find our podcast on all the major platforms. Please like and review us on Apple Podcasts. Also check out our sister podcast, Grant Co's Blended Knowledge, which is available on all good podcast apps. I'm Fola Alalea. And I'm Oli Giu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>